When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to Conspiranormal. It's your host, Adam, and Sirfiel standing by. What's up, Sirfiel? Hey, standing by. That's right. We're uh, doing this thing remotely now, as you know, situations change in the world. But uh, we're very happy tonight to have uh, someone that I had on about five years ago and that I also got to meet at the Paradigm Symposium way back when we could go places in 2016. Uh, Mr. Laird Scranton. Laird, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Well, thank you very much. It has has been a while, but I've been looking forward to this all week. So uh, <laughs> glad to be here. Yeah, excellent. I'm 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 glad to hear that. We're we're gl- we're definitely glad to have you. And um, you have been, I believe, I had you on back in 2015 to talk about the book Point of Origin, which was about Gebekli Tepe, and. I know that that was, I think that that, that was probably, probably episode 60 something. And here we are at episode, I think four three forty three. So yeah, it's been a little while <laughs> and you just put out a book called primal wisdom of the ancients, the cosmological plan for humanity. And this book, I, am I correct in saying that this is the last book of the series? No, not at all. As, as a matter of fact, what I've been doing, because it takes, and when we traditionally public, publish a book, it can take a year and a half from the time you submit a manuscript to the time it's published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the last three years, I've been self-publishing a second book. And I've actually, uh, Primal Wisdom of, Wisdom of the Ancients was released in July. I've just now self-published a second volume um, uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. So this oh, is wow. by no means the last, the last book in the series, and there, there's bound to be uh, more coming forward. I have pretty good ideas for what the, the follow-on volumes are going to be. Okay. Well, the reason I asked that was because this seemed to be kind of like a summary of some of your conclusions. Well, it is a stopping to recap. Um, there are, you know, th- the uh, many of the other books of the series are um, sort of, focused on one geographical area, one tradition, and moving from Africa to Egypt to India to Tibet and China, then to um, Turkey, then to Northern Scotland, then on to the Maori in New Zealand. Um, in writing those books, there were you know, insights that I would get or, or um, topics I'd like to talk about, 
but that didn't really pertain to that geographical area or the subject of the book I was writing. And these are things that I, that I wanted to have an opportunity to, to look back on. This is an, more of an overview of um, really the theme of the book is um, various ways in which the hand of the ancient teachers is revealed in the material. Um, that's really the concept for the book. And it's across a few, a few different cultures that you study. Right. This is um, uh, pertaining to a symbolic system that they were all influenced by. And so if you imagine, as the Dogans say, that uh, they, they benefited from a civilizing plan for humanity that was tagged to a symbolic cosmology, it's that original plan, which I see as being common to all these ancient traditions that I'm writing about and talking about now, what reason do we have to think that this was really an instructed plan? What, what aspects of it make it look like this was deliberate instruction? And there are many, many different ways in which we can, we can point to that, many aspects to look at that uh, pertain to that. Okay. Well, then that's something that we are definitely going to talk about tonight, and I definitely want to hit, hit some, of those, uh, some of those points about um, why you, that you – think that there was this kind of civilizing plan and what that what that means and some of the other some of the other important aspects of it but i kind of want to do a little bit of review about how you became interested in particularly in the dogon and i know of course like the the most intriguing probably ancient aliens theme that i've ever booked that i've ever read was the serious mystery by Robert Temple. And of course he talks about the Dogon. Is that what got you into it? Um, yeah, that was sort of my second step. Um, um, I sort of happened across the Dogon thanks to my wife, Risa. Um, she had read a book called unexplained by Jerome Clark. And one of the chapters in that book is about the Dogon and about um, them appearing to know things about astronomy that they shouldn't know without access to technology. The Dogon are a modern day primitive African tribe from the desert area in the south of Mali in Africa, up in the Northwest Hump. And this is a tribe that builds, you know, their villages out of mud huts and raise onions for a living and do, you know, carve wooden uh, statues as artwork and paint cliff drawings and things like that. This is a, uh, a tribe that um, deliberately located itself eight hours across the desert from anything that we would consider to be uh, civilized. This is not a, not a, a technological tribe, but they um, Temple noticed that the Dogen uh, know some facts about the star system of Sirius that they shouldn't know. Um, but from my point of view, that's actually just the very slimmest tip of an iceberg in terms of the quality of scientific knowledge that the tribe is preserving. And so um, his book was also my, my entry, entry point at, you know, beyond that first chapter in Jerome Clark's book. Uh, the Serious Mystery was my entry point into these studies. And I actually followed uh, Temple's bi bibliography in trying to find um, likely sources um, to learn more about it myself uh, back in the late 1990s. Yeah, that Jerome Clark book is actually one of my favorite, favorite books. I, I like literally 
like tore the eventually the cover of it just came off because that was one that really like introduced me to all these kind of concepts and it's an interesting um it's interesting because that's a book about like unexplained physical phenomenon and he has that entrance that entry in there and then later on i actually picked up a copy of the serious mystery and i actually i actually read it and like i said it's probably like I guess you say quote unquote ancient alien themed kind of book that really um, was really, really, I think that had a lot of credibility to it much more so than some of the others. Right. Um, Temple had a disadvantage in that he was writing um, five or so years before um, actually almost 10 years before there was an English language translation of the, uh, 30-year anthropological study of the Dogen that had been done by some French anthropologists. And Temple had a, one or two chapters translated that, that he could refer to, but he didn't have access to the whole study. Um, I was writing enough later that I did have access not only to the study, but to the guy who did the translation and to the woman who edited that translated study. So, um, my perspective on things differs from temples a little bit. And over time, as I've, I've done more comparative study with other traditions, I've come to have a different focus, slightly different focus and different nuances of perspective on, on things. Yeah, so what was it that in particular kind of intrigued you about sort of like the esoteric and the kind of the religious systems of the Dogon, like why them in particular that really intrigued you. Well, to, to begin with, the fact that they seemed to know the science was intriguing. I figured anything I learned about that was going to be interesting, no matter where it led. Uh, but as you get more into detail about the tribe and what they're actually saying and what their priests are saying, their symbolic system represents. Um, first off, the Dogen um, are entirely on top of the meanings of their own symbols and rituals and myths and so forth. They can flatly say what it means to them in modern terms um, out of the lips of living priests. So that's a huge advantage when we're talking about um, issues that go back to ancient times. The Dogen culture is sort of an umbrella over th at least three different ancient, important ancient traditions. They have um, cultural um, practices like ancient Egypt at around 3000 BC. They have um, ritual practices like Judaism in ancient times, and they have a symbolic cosmology that's parallel to the Buddhist symbolic cosmology. Um, so the mere fact to find all three of those elements under one societal umbrella implied to me that there, there must be a common denominator to those traditions, that somewhere back in time, they all started out as one thing. So that was really my, my entry point into it. And then um, realizing that there was commonality between three traditions, um, I understand the value of comparative studies, that if you want to get back at original meanings of things, and you have two or three different ancient groups that are all talking about the same things, then you can sort of cross reference back and forth and triangulate in on what the original meaning had to be, or at least you can validate that the meaning hasn't walked in one of the traditions. Like for the Dogen, uh, the Dogen words that this system is expressed in are largely ancient Egyptian words. So I use an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary to satisfy myself that 
the meaning that the Dogen priests are assigning to a word is in the same ballpark as how it was understood by the ancient Egyptians, you know, thousands of years ago, 5,000 years ago. Uh, same thing with Buddhism. The Buddhist symbolic system is so similar to the Dogen that although it's given in an entirely different language, but there's such parallels between the two that you can use one to cross-reference the other, that a modern authority on Dogen symbolism would be largely in agreement with a modern authority on ancient Buddhist symbolism on any given subject. And what that implies is that neither system changed over thousands of years. If they had, they wouldn't still agree today. Well, I want to ask, I want to ask you this, Laird, about um, some of the other things that the, that the Dogans um, speak about. I mean, there, of course, a lot of people focused on the Sirius um, star system and how they could have known that Sirius was a binary star and this type of thing. And there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of discussion about that, but what other kind of, what other aspects that are in their like religious, um, religious beliefs that also are maybe like more important than that? Well, the Dogen priests flatly say that their symbolic system describes how a tribal God created matter. Mm -hmm. And so from the outset, I could see, I knew enough about the, uh, the science of matter to recognize a, a correct description of an atom when I heard it, correct descriptions of electrons, protons, and neutrons. And the Dogans support their concepts very often with a drawing. And the drawing they use to support their discussion about uh, electrons uh, takes the same shape as a, an electron orbital shape imaged by an actual electron microscope. So I could see from those two factors alone that it looked like the Dogen knew what they were talking about. But they have this in, entire descending structure for matter that I, I wasn't competent to evaluate just off the top of my head. Is, is this right or is this not right? And so I sort of had to educate myself about that. But again, that is only the tip of an iceberg because in these ancient traditions, when they talk about the concept of creation, they're really talking about three themes simultaneously. They're talking about how the universe forms, how matter forms, and how biological reproduction happens. And they say, the Dogans say, that those processes are so parallel to each other that essentially the Dogan defined that entire, uh, all three themes simultaneously using a single progression of symbols. These are the same symbols that you find in Egyptian hieroglyphs, the same symbols that are Jung's archetypes, the same symbols you find all over the world. And part of the reason the symbolism is so complicated is because each symbol has meaning for each of those three themes that um, looked at from one perspective, we're talking about how, uh, let's say, uh, the symbol of a hemisphere represents, um, if we're talking biology, we're talking, it represents the expanded womb of a, of a mother's stomach. You know, the expanded shape of mother's stomach. If we're talking about the formated formation of matter, it represents the expansion of mass as uh, particles are about to form. And so you can't really ask, what does the symbol represent? You really have to ask, what does it represent if we're talking about the universe? What does it represent if we're talking about matter? What does it represent if we're talking about biological life? So you state that there's kind of, there's, there's kind of two levels at work here in this material that you have um, these, these kind of concepts that are important to like 
physics and some like more scientific concepts, but then there's also another level that is a more surface level that is almost like a, a pointing to um, how to farm, how to, how to, to produce things agriculturally. Right. Um, the Dogen say that there ain't there. Uh, the reason the Dogen know about these things is because they say they were taught by um, mythical instructors back in ancient times who thoroughly understood these subjects and that the goals, the primary goals of those teachers were first off to help humanity understand what our true place is in relation to these larger processes of creation, figuring that if we understood that, we might make better choices for ourselves about how not to interfere with those, that larger scheme. The second goal was to um, essentially move us uh, from a level of hunter-gatherers to a level of farmers. And at the same time, establish a structure for society that had coherence to it that could hold together. And so the way the system was developed, there's a relationship between both sets of concepts. Um, the way that a Dogen tribesperson plows a field recreates a process of creation, an important process of creation. Same thing when they when they weave a cloth or uh, pretty much any every facet of Dogen life um, uh, reinforces the scientific teaching by by recreating a process. And so as a Dogen tribe person goes through their everyday life, everything they see, everything they do is there to sort of mnemonically re- reinforce um, the scientific teachings they were taught. That, that's how they managed to hold it together in coherent form for thousands of years. Was this information um, given to them from some earlier uh, mother civilization that had this kind of contact that you postulate, or was this, this was directly to uh, the group that became the modern Dogon as well as other groups simultaneously? That That's a complicated question. And I'll try to try to answer it in a way that makes sense. First off where the ancient Egyptians talk about a first time and the Buddhists talk about the first time knowledge was passed to humanity by a Buddha the Dogen talk about a time when humanity was restored to culture. And so inherent sort of as a presumption in the Dogen point of view is that there were prior eras of high culture for humanity. Okay. So that's the mindset, but the, um, the Buddhists flatly say that their most sacred symbols were revealed to humanity from a non-human source. This is uh, like page three stuff in uh, a book called Symbolism of the Stupa by a leading authority on Buddhist symbolism called Adrian, named Adrian Snodgrass. He's um, a professor of um, Buddhist architecture and symbolism from the University of West Sydney, Australia. So the Buddhist perspective is that, that the most important aspects of this symbolism they got from a non-human source. The Dogen agree with that. They say they got it from a non-human source, but they take it a step further. They say not only was it non-human, it was originally non-material. Now, those, those matching statements by the two cultures who did, from my perspective, did the best job of preserving this system independently of each other is, it puts me in sort of a hard position because I only have two choices. 
I can imagine that they both misremembered somehow in matching ways who they got the system from. And that doesn't make sense to me. Or I can allow that they actually did get it from a non-human source, but that means now I have to entertain the possibility of a non-human source. And worse yet with the Dogen, I have to entertain a perspective that somehow an intelligence that was originally non-material was able to take, take material form and then take action in the material world to instruct these people. So um, there are books, one book in particular of mine, a book called Seeking the Primordial, is dedicated. The, the, pur the purpose of the book is to lay out the foundation for how that could be possible. How is it possible? Is there a reasonable scientific perspective from which a non-material intelligence might have taken action in the material world? And there is, but it takes the entire book's worth the foundation to express it in a way that would make any sense to anybody. Um, all of this comes out of a, an ancient philosophy called Samkhya out of India. This is the foundation of all the Indian classic religious traditions. Samkhya is a cosmological philosophy that's paired with yoga. We're all pretty familiar with yoga, which is the more personalized version of the same thing, down to parallelism between the words and the concepts and so forth, that if a person is very familiar with yoga, they already understand the key terms of the, the cosmological side of things with very parallel meanings. So Samkhya says, universes form in pairs, one non-material and one material, that there's a cycle of energy between the two universes that is as essential to life as the natural water cycle is on Earth. We know that if water didn't evaporate to create rain that then, you know, rained over the mountains and flowed back to the sea, if we didn't have that cycle of water on the planet, there wouldn't be any life on the planet. Well, the Dogen are saying, and Samke is saying, that without this cycle of energy between universes, there would be no life in the universes. So that cycle of energy is not just scroll. Oh, the, the idea is there's an oscillation here. There's energy that sort of scrolls out to a certain extent into the the universe that is more material and then it reverses itself and it flows back to the original universe. So you have this sort of this cycle of one universe progressively becoming more massive and more, um, more material while the other universe is becoming less massive and less material. What's what's scrolling is not just energy, but it's also mass. Um, to give you a scientific perspective on that, the, Astrophysicists say that in the same period of time that it took our universe to double in size or double in volume, that the ratio of mass to energy also doubled. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the two. So if we are living in an expanding universe, we're also living in a universe where there's a higher ratio of mass to energy. And Einstein says that when a thing becomes more massive, um, it experiences time in a slower way. Time slows down. Yeah, theory of relativity. Right. right. So the essential difference between these universes is really one of quickness of time frame. Now, if we imagine that that whole scenario of the two universes, compare it to sand in an hourglass. You know, when you when you tip the hourglass upside down, all the sand's in the top, and it's starting to flow down into the bottom. Well. Conceptually, as that sand shifts, we're shifting time frame. We're slowing time frame for one universe, and we're quickening it 
for the second universe. So at the, at the midpoint in the cycle, we, would, we, we understand that we would have the same amount of sand in the top globe as we have in the bottom globe. And at that point in the cycle, the time frame should equalize. And when the time frames equalize, we have a situation that's a lot like equalized pressure between the submarine and, and the underwater or uh, equalized pressure between us, a space capsule and the and outside. Yeah, they use airlocks to equalize pressure to make it safe to move from one domain to the other. Mm -hmm. We can imagine that at the midpoint of this cycle of energy, if the time frames equalize, that it might be thinkable that somebody, some intelligence from the non-material side could move across on into the material side. And you think that there's also a relationship to the cycles um, that we experience in the in the solar year to this type of that's like an exoteric version of it. You think there's some kind of relation to the equinoxes, right? Yes. Well, one one of the okay um, that midpoint of the cycle. Um, okay, the cycle we're talking about in from a Buddhist or a Hindu perspective is the yuga cycle. Um, the Another term for the yuga cycle is the great year. We, the, the, one of the metaphors they use to compare the cycle to is just an ordinary every you know four season or three four season year. You know, um, so the midpoint of a great year cycle would be the equinox. In ancient Egypt, um, the word for equinox was keper, and keper was also the name of the dung beetle. The and the dung beetle symbolism was non-existence coming into existence, which is exactly the concept we're talking about relating to that equinox point, that midpoint. Um, a lot of ancient um, holidays were centered on the equinox. Um, in Judaism, too, in particular, there's, there's a, a holiday at the equinox called um, um, Yom Kippur, which we can imagine Yom Kippur, the same idea as the concept of Kippur. We have another holiday called Passover. Now, Passover, just in its name, conjures the idea of being able to transfer between the universes. Mm -hmm. A traditional Passover Seder actually ends with the participants opening up a door to the outside to allow uh, a non-material entity named Eliyahu to imaginarily enter the room. So Judaism is actually acting out the dynamic that the Dogen perspectives imply is happening. The idea of being able to cross over from non-materiality to materiality at the midpoint of this cycle. So if we um, imagine that right now, we're just, we're just now passing the end of a half cycle. We're, we're our universe from my perspective, just past the point where it was as material as it's going to be. It's about a, a 12,000 year cycle. And so roughly 6,000 years ago, we would have been at the midpoint in that half cycle. So are you talking, are you talking about procession? Yeah, it's also procession. It also relates to the same concept. This is the, the um, 12,920 or whatever it is year um, processional cycle. Okay. So that's how you're figuring that we, that's, that's how you're, you're calculating that, right? Is, is, right, is that's right. Based on the processional cycle, okay. based on okay. there are different cultures that have different estimates of how long the cycle runs, but the one I like, the one I, I prefer, is um, the processional cycle that twelve thousand nine hundred and 
20 or whatever it is year uh, cycle, every unit of measure pretty much that the was a classic unit of measure of the ancient cultures, you know, the 60 day, um, um, let's say the, uh, the 12 month year or the 30 day month or the um, 360 day year, uh, the 60 minute uh, 60 second minute or 60 minute hour, all of those units of measure are even factors of that processional cycle. So if someone with an overview of, of what the truth of the science was had put the system together, it makes sense to me that they would have taken the grandest cycle that we're able to perceive and use that as the basis for our, our measures that everything else would be uh, where possible would be a factor of that, that grand cycle. So another confirmation we have that that perspective is correct is that in Kabbalism, they say that there was a flaw in the formation of the material universe that would take approximately 6,000 years to resolve itself. That the, in Judaism, they were required to observe um, the high holy day holidays for approximately 6,000 years as a way of sort of rectifying this, what they, what Kabbalism describes as a defect in the material universe. Well, the Hebrew calendar is sitting somewhere above uh, 5780 right now. So what, ha what happens in year 6,000? Well, that's, that's a guesstimate of how of um, the time length between the equinox, uh, the middle midpoint of the cycle, and now, uh, uh, and uh, the point where the material universe is most material and the non-material is least material. Okay. So what happens at that point is that there's a shift in the trend that the universe that had previously be been becoming um, more material is suddenly now starting to become less material. And the other universe is now starting to become more material and they start to, to change roles. This is an ongoing cycle where they take turns essentially being the less material and the more material of the universes. So does that mean as the non-material universe and the material universe get closer together, as like you said, you'd use the example of an equalizing of pressure. Right. Does that mean that we are more easily able to communicate with that other, or, or, or is it more vice versa? They're more easily able to communicate with us. Yes, the, the Buddhist perspective is that humanity moves through eras where we're more able to perceive things non-material and less able. And at the extreme of the cycle, it's when we're least able to perceive our non-material twin, which is where we're at right now. But the Dogen perspective is that the non-material domain can can always perceive the material domain. Um, they, uh, the Dogen have rituals that involved uh, the wearing of masks that are meant to symbolize that, to represent that, the idea of sort of a one-way view out of non-materiality into materiality. Samkhya says that the non-material domain has perfect knowledge, but an inability to act. And that the material universe has imperfect knowledge with full ability to act. And so consequently, there are routine, Samkhya says that there are routine attempts made from the non-material side, both to communicate knowledge to the material side and to induce action 
on the material side. And those attempts take the form of synchronicities, uh, meaningful synchronicities, um, vivid dreams, um, the unusual behavior of animals, um, uh, divination and clairvoyance. Um, Kabbalism defines um, more than a half dozen uh, classes of what they call mystics based on how a person is able to perceive things non-material. Some people can do it through hallucinogenic drugs. Some people can do it through tossing the I Ching. Some people can do it um, by going into trances like Edgar Casey. Some people can do it like, a, um, say, uh, a health psychic who can simply pose a question in non-materiality and get an answer. Um, so there are many different classes of, of, of mystical connection to this non-material knowledge. Mm -hmm. Does this dance between these worlds of material, non-material, is it, do they, in this cosmology, do they eventually come to some kind of synthesis? Not permanently. No, this is an ongoing cycle. And, uh, as the Dogen explained it in a myth, the Dogen talk about the a character, a mythological character named Ogo, who plays the role of light. And Ogo decides he can create a universe as perfect as the universe that uh, Ama, who represents the feminine non-material, has created. And so Ogo um, takes actions he shouldn't and breaks off a square piece of the, the placenta of uh, the non-material uh, feminine and creates a material universe. But in so doing, he creates a situation where he's uh, condemned for eternity to seek his sister, but never find her. And that's essentially the relationship between those two, two domains is there's this ongoing cycle with only moments of mm -hmm. where, where we could say that there's a direct connection between the two. It serves as like a creation myth, almost like it creates the world that, as we know it itself, this tension. Right. Absolutely. It's uh, that's the heart heart of the creation myth. Now, the essential difference between non the non material domain and the material domain is rests with how quickly time runs. And so, on the non material side, if you imagine things getting less and less and less massive progressively. That means time is speeding up and speeding up and speeding up and speeding up until it finally reaches a point where effectively all events happen at once and there's no coherent moment left in which to take action. Uh, there's an equivalent state for a human being. It's called locked-in syndrome. There was a famous book and a film made from the book written a few years back um, in France called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And it was written by a man who had locked-in syndrome. He had suffered a stroke and had a car accident, and they thought he was brain dead, and they took him home to care for him because in France, they don't, uh, they, they don't let a person in that situation die. They try to take care of them, and, in the, uh, and um, they have aides come in to, to watch them and family members and so forth. Well, this gentleman only had the ability left to sort of randomly – uh, move his eyelids, at least what they thought were random movements. But then eventually one of the aides noticed that it looked like it wasn't right random. 
And so she tried an experiment with them. She she stepped through the alphabet, starting with the first letter and and sort of counting forward in the letters and asked him to blink to indicate a letter. And she established a system with him where he could spell out words to her. And she realized he was completely conscious inside there. It was like being buried alive because nobody knew he was there. But once she figured out he was there, then he wrote this entire book, one blinked letter at a time. <laughs> that was all about, you know, the the crisis of being this locked in condition, you know, a horrific state. So with the universes, there's a comparable situation that the non-material side, about a third of the way into the process where it's becoming less and less material, figures out that where, where things are headed are to the equivalent of that locked-in state where they're going to have perfect consciousness but no ability to take action. And the only potential compatriot they have when they're in that state is the material side. But unfortunately, at the point where they're locked in, we're so far distanced from non-materiality that most of us have no idea it's even there. Right. So they resolve to take action on behalf of both universes. They take efforts, make efforts in the material universe to establish structures for society that are designed to, to preserve the memory of the fact that the non-material domain is there and conscious and trying to communicate with the idea that when we get to the era that we're in right now, that there will still be a percentage of us who understand that, who can act as communicants and caretakers and take action on behalf of non-materiality. I was going to I was going to say something about the, um, the myth of Ogo that um, that's when you were, when you were telling that story, Right. And these same things, same themes play out in, in somewhat altered form all over the world. And there are aspects of this tradition that got preserved by each of these ancient cultures who were influenced by it originally. And that's why you have these common themes and these common uh, stonemasonry techniques and uh, um, common symbols and common words and so forth. It's not because one culture had physical contact with all these other cultures. It's that representatives of each of these cultures were deliberately brought to a remote location and instructed in a civilizing plan and this scientific tradition, and then sent back to teach everybody else. That's one of the the archetypical themes of Jung was the um, the the theme of the eight mythical ancestors or emperors or whoever they might be who were the bringers of civilizing skills. So just just as kind of like a recap, just to make sure that that I kind of understand this. So we're in. You see this as a twelfth. It's like a roughly a twelve thousand year cycle. Well, a twelve thousand year half cycle. It's about a twenty five thousand year, almost twenty six thousand year, full cycle. Okay, so. In the half of that 26,000 years, that's when we're at the furthest point from the non-material universe. Right. If you think of it, think of it, the whole cycle as a, the face of a clock, the half cycle begins at 12 o'clock and ends at 6 o'clock, or it begins at 6 o'clock and ends at 12 o'clock. Now, the midpoint of the cycle, there are two midpoints, just as there are two, two equinoxes in a year, 
three o'clock and nine o'clock are the equinoxes. So the 6,000 year period we're talking about mm-hmm. has extended from three, three o'clock to where we are now. It just passed six o'clock. Okay. So roughly 6,000 years ago, we were at a closer contact. Humanity was in a closer contact with this non-material universe. Right. Now we have stories about that in the Old Testament there's a there is um a lot of discussion devoted to Moses on the mount when he gets the tablets of the the, the commandments mm-hmm. and encounters the the burning bush and all of the cautions that are issued to the Israelites to stay back from the mountain because of bad effects that might happen to them if they approach too closely. Well the Dogans say that was a, a real concern that the their teachers were concerned about what bad effects might accrue to us if we had prolonged contact with them. And so their answer to that, their solution to that was to initially to uh, only expose eight tribe members from any given tribe to that instruction and send them back to instruct everybody else. But in fact, what it looks like happened was that as soon as they had people and, you know, human people who were on top of that, body of knowledge, they were using the humans as sort of assistant professors, uh, intermediaries between themselves and the humans to sort of eliminate that whole concern about um, prolonged contact to them. Where does Gobekli Tepe fit into this? Okay, Gobekli Tepe is um, very early in the half cycle that we're just now finishing. So, um, and it, it falls only a short time after the end of the Ice Age, And the Ice Age did a number on humanity completely. So whatever high culture we had before the Ice Age was pretty much a done deal by the time the Ice Age ends. So it looks as if, because that is so far distanced from that equinox point, it looks to me as if the Gobekli Tepe era instruction was carried out, as my late friend John Anthony West thought, by survivors of the previous cycle who had been um, preservers of that same knowledge and now took action to try to give humanity a leg back up on, uh, on civilization after the Ice Age. There's a second era of instruction that occurs 6,000 years ago, starting at about 4,000, sometime after 4,000 BC, centered on Orkney Island in, in Northern Scotland. And pretty much every classic uh, religious tradition or creation tradition that we're familiar with um, relates to the Orkney Island era of instruction. And Orkney is um, effectively a hub that connects all those traditions. And in the the era just immediately following the Orkney Island instruction, okay, the the heyday of the Orkney instruction was about 3200 BC. By around 3000 BC, you start seeing effects of that in all sorts of different cultures around the world. Uh, First off, you have um, the appearance of agriculturally based kingships in four key locations. Um, In Egypt, um, associated with an ancient named uh, Taru. In China, called Iru. In Ireland, called Aru. And in South America, called Peru. And those words um, 
have meanings in ancient languages. By one perspective, they refer to the, uh, their designations for the four cardinal points of the planet, north, south, east, and west. By another perspective, they represent um, four progressive stages of an agricultural field from an uncultivated field to a field that has just been planted to a field with growing crops and to harvested grain in a, in a granary. So each of those agriculturally based kingships have, have things in common with each other that people that um, the academics have, are not able to explain. First of all, nobody knows where, where they came from. They basically arrive, you know, arrive out of a background with no historical foundation for the, for the civilization appearing. You know, we don't know who the pharaohs were. We don't know who the first emperors of China were. We don't know who the, the first people in charge in South America were. Now, in each of these locations, you have association with common symbols like lions or whatever localized animal like a leopard that was, was closest to a lion. Um, you have similar dynamics relating to certain rituals and burial rituals and burial chamber shapes and um, choices on siting, uh, placement of certain sites. Um, one, of, one really important one that I don't think anybody else has recognized before uh, the book that I the, just now self-published, I, I, I'm, I may talk about it in Primal Wisdom of the Ancients also, is um, the deliberate choice to locate um, communities in view of mountains to the east or to the west that the um, farmers can observe the motions of the sun as the sun rises or sets against the backdrop of those mountains. On Orkney in Scotland, there are two mountains on an, an island called Hoy, and it's almost a perfect arrangement in that the sun sets directly in the middle of those two mountains at the equinox and then moves north or south um, along that mountain chain or the, between those two mountains um, you know, to the solstices. Uh, when Akhenaten built his new capital at Akhetaten in Egypt, 1,500 years, more than 1,500 years after the Orkney tradition, he deliberately sighted it in a place that had a view of mountains just like that. He could watch the sun rise um, between two mountains and from there judge the, uh, the seasonality of the year. It gave, gave visibility to the seasons of the year. And he set a pedestal, he set a pillar, very much like there's a pillar on Orkney that's deliberately set to be the place you watch from to see that effect happen. The same tradition plays out all over the world. You see it, Elephantine Island is set in position in relation to uh, a single mountain that looks like an ele a reclining elephant that... Um, you can watch the sunrise behind. I, I found a recent reference from somebody who lives in Elephantine today saying, well, um, I can tell by where the sun is right now that summer's coming. At just, Abydos in Egypt, in, in the era, era just after Orkney, they deliberately established Abydos in view of, a, of two comparable mountains with the same kind of a pass in between. The ancient name Abdu, according to Om Sete, meant the desired mountain. It's explicit that they located there because of the mountain. In Hinduism, 
it's flatly said that that was that was the way of doing things. That's that's that was deliberate. It was a deliberate practice. So this was something that would help them kind of determine the seasons. In other words, like this would help. This would help to be successful at farming. You needed to know right. when to plant and harvest. Okay, and so by watching the sun and its relationship to when when the equinox and the solstices are. Um, depending on your latitude and your climate and so forth, they could pick just the right moment to plant based on where the sun was against those mountains. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> you, you are you are one hundred percent correct that that there's all these concepts in ancient mythology that talk about different um, the gods or whatever influencing mankind. And so this is like, this is in, this is pretty much what you're saying. I mean, this is, that's it. Um, that it could be something for coming from a non-material universe. Right. Um, I was um, in, in the most recent book that I published. Um, I quote an academic from whose, whose focus of study was in the near East. And he says, um, you know, in his entire experience, he has never encountered an ancient culture that didn't make claims for ancient instruction from somebody who is godlike. Sure. And then he goes on to say, but you know, now it's time to set all that nonsense aside. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought you have, you know, in any other avenue of life, when everybody's telling you the same thing, that's corroborated testimony. It means you've got to consider it. It doesn't mean that you toss it out. Well, you do have the camp that believes in like the concept of an ancient civilization that perished around the time of the younger Darius. I mean, I know that we've talked to Randall Carlson quite a few times. He talks about the, the common impact and it's looking more and more that that probably is something that really did happen. Um, I agree that there, there was a dramatic change at, at the end of the ice age, actually several incidents. And I also agree that there was, previous high culture before that now some people would say that those were the survivors of that previous civilization and that they were set up as gods kind of like um a cargo cult kind of thing in a certain right. way and i again i agree completely in the gobekli tepe era that makes the most sense to me that that's what happened but by the by the 3600 bc era there are tangibly different things going on and tangibly different claims being made by any number of different cultures. Um, the fact that we have the, the direct comparability uh, uh, between Buddhism and the Dogen about, about the subject matter sort of puts us in the right ballpark to begin with. And there are, there are ways of, of cross confirming that to other cultures. Kabbalism's on board with the perspective um, uh, Hinduism's on board with it. Ancient Egypt's on board with it. Um, I can now connect to the Minoan era in the Aegean and the ancient. I know how how the Greeks connect. Um, I know how the Maori and New Zealand connect. Um, so, I agree that at the nine thousand BC era, we're probably looking at survivors of a of an Atlantis who were the teachers who took it on themselves to, to try to restart things, re, reboot things for us. That by 3600 BC, it looks as if what the Dogen and the Buddhists are saying was happening. That at that era, there is a perspective from which 
a non-material intelligence might have been involved and and fairly compelling reasons to think they were. Or could a non-material intelligence been involved with the builders of the Gobekli Tepe? I mean, I, I, mean, I guess it's all, you know, you're going way back into real pre extreme prehistory. And right. And this is a cycle that's going, this is a cycle that's been going on over and over and over and over again. And humanity has been around for hundreds of thousands of years. We're talking about a half cycle that's taken 12,000 years. So think of how many times in the history of humanity, we've had the opportunities to produce high culture and then to have that high culture disappear. That's what I've been saying for a long time, Laird. <laughs> I've been saying that for a while. I mean, even if you look at like, um, I mean, I think that, well, they said that Cro-Magnon man came around about like 35,000 years ago, I think is the general, it may, it may be even pushed back even further than that now, but the, um, Within that time, I mean, if you if you go to like the time of the Younger Dryas, you're still talking about something like roughly twenty thousand something years. I mean, our own civilization has only been around for, well, I guess roughly five thousand. So, I mean, it's it's you could easily see that within that time something could have risen and fallen. Um, and then you have other things going back even further. Like the, uh, was it the, oh man, the, the Toba volcano that, uh, they said that humans actually entered a genetic bottleneck because there were so few humans after that, the massive, um, eruption. So there's, there's been several of these, of these type of events on the planet that, you know, if, if we've risen and fallen and risen and fallen several times, and maybe that cycle has something that has something to do with that. Right. And periodic cataclysms. I mean, it looks to me as if there's pretty clear evidence that the tilt of the axis of the planet hasn't always been where it is right now. You can't mm -hmm. grow um, primordial forests in Antarctica. We have, we have um, petrified forests of comparable size to what Lewis and Clark found on the West coast when they arrived. You can't grow a tree like that in the amount of sunlight you have down there. So clearly Antarctica wasn't always situated where it is in terms of in relation to the sun. Um, you can't have um, a mastodon frozen so quickly that its last meal hasn't been digested um, without a very rapid change in the tilt of the axis of the earth. You'd have to have moved him into a frozen zone in a, within a period of 24 hours. Right. Right. And that's, I think where something like, um, Randall's comet theory comes into play. That, uh, right. That's, and I grew up in, in the Pacific Northwest. So I've, I've seen a lot of the, the, um, the geology that he's talking about. And I, I agree completely. It makes perfect sense. What he says about the comet strike makes perfect sense to me. Um, and might well be the, the ultimate cause of the end of that ice age. And also from my perspective, the ice ages, if you pay attention, you don't have Europe glaciated at the same time you have um, North America glaciated. And that makes no sense whatsoever, unless what we're really looking at isn't a change in climate. We're looking at a change in tilt of axis. 
And mm -hmm. in that case, what you'd expect to see is the point opposite on the globe from North America glaciated when North America is glaciated. And that's what you actually find. You have opposite points on the planet glaciated at the same time. Yeah, that is true as well. That's true as well. Let's, I want to talk a little bit about some of these concepts um, that they teach about. But before we get to that, I want to kind of like the, the role of myth and legend, and we've touched it on a little bit of this, but the role of myth and legends is kind of like teaching about those concepts and how those are embedded into these kind of esoteric traditions that the Dogon are, are known for having a deep kind of esoteric tradition. But I mean, this is, of course, as you say, is all over the planet in many different cultures. But the Dogon specifically, you know, that kind of the role, like and you talked about Ogo, who um, um, symbolizes light, I suppose, and these kind of concepts. But, um, but kind of let's talk about like the role of myth. Right. Well, um, from the perspective of the teachers, here's what the, the issue was. If you've decided you're going to um, instruct about science, high science, deep science, I mean, we're talking quantum science. We're talking about uh, dynamics of energy that people like Stephen Hawking and Brian, Brian Green don't typically write about that they go deeper than what they typically write about. If you're going to create a symbolic system that's representing those kinds of concepts, that by, by definition is aimed at a technological audience. But the hunters and gatherers that they were teaching it to were by no means that technological audience. So the audience they were aiming at was a future audience like us, someone who's going to recognize the shape mm -hmm. of an electron orbit when they see it. Well, the problem 9,000 years earlier in trying to frame a system that's going to resonate with somebody like us is they have no idea for, they have no certain idea what our reference point of reference is going to be, our frame of reference. If I create a metaphor, if I'm comparing one thing to another for you, that comparison doesn't work if you don't have experience with the thing I'm comparing to. And so part of the issue was how do you settle on metaphors that are really going to be able to resonate 9,000 years in the future? And so they hedged their bets. They expressed the same ideas in terms of multiple metaphors. Um, first, and they tried to frame those metaphors in terms of processes that weren't going to change, like how a plant grows from a seed or the, the basic categories of, of life, you know, from insects to fish to mammals to birds um, and or categories of of matter like talking about water wind earth and fire these metaphors were established um, in the hopes that at least one of the set, the groups of metaphors was going to resonate with the audience that was receiving the information but there it's like OCD careful um, consistency in the way that symbolism is assigned to symbols, how, how words are formulated and so forth. And none of it is secret that once you have a, a grasp of how the system works, they're flatly telling you everything. They're not trying to hide anything. Every character's name flatly tells you what, is, what he symbolizes. 
and they're even down to place names, names of um, cultures. They're naming conventions for tribal groups who were influenced by this tradition. There are um, there, there's no attempt to hide anything here. If it, it's right out in the open, if you can get back to what the original term was, and that's part of why my thrust in all of this is is focused on trying to arrive at the original word. I'm, I value the researcher who, even though they didn't know what a term meant, took the moment to document in their book what the original term was and what it was thought to mean back in the day. So let's talk about some of those concepts. Um, I'll start with um, angular momentum, how that's kind of embedded in there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Angular momentum is a root dynamic of energy. Um Ultimately, what what we're concerned about in this scientific system, I, talk, I talked about there being parallelism between how the universe forms, how matter forms, and how biology, biological life emerges. Well, the parallelism goes much, much deeper than that. What it comes down to is a handful of dynamics of energy that, that in one way or another, we're all familiar with already. It's not hard to understand. And those those dynamics play out in parallel form all the way up the scale from the quantum world to the macrocosmic world to universes and beyond. And it begins with spinning energy. Um, anytime you have two qualities of energy, two differing qualities of energy that come together, that could be streams of water of different temperature or of different speeds or, um, uh, different qualities of energy like magnetism and electricity. Anytime you have two differing qualities of energy come together, they tend to spin. Now, when energy spins, it um, certain things happen. First of all, the spinning energy um, creates resonance the same way a spinning top creates a hum. And that resonance eventually creates uh, dissonance and resistance. And it's that resistance that constitutes mass. And when, as it creates that resistance, the spinning energy then evokes vectors of energy to try to relieve that resistance. And the vectors of energy are emitted perpendicularly to the plane of the spinning energy. So if you imagine um, a CD spinning, that the vectors of energy are perpendicular to that CD, like the spindle that the, the CD um, rides on. Um, effectively, there are seven vectors of energy that are evoked as, as energy spins. And the Dogen system describes all that perfectly. It just, it, it takes a certain level of understanding about the system to realize that that's what they're talking about. Mm. Um, as I was learning about it, it became increasingly clear to me that all of these concepts that, that all of the major religions say are, are fundamentally, uh, inherently un not understandable by humanity, that it's far simpler than that. It's like Stephen Hawking said in one of the la his last statements before he died, that it's much simpler than we think it is. Einstein also said that if uh, material forms arose naturally that it had to have begun with something very simple. Well, it's so simple that it boils down to this half dozen um, 
concepts of energy. One's called angular momentum, or actually that begins with angular impulse, which is the two energies coming together. That angular impulse causes energy to spin. That's called angular momentum. That creates the vectors of energy that are called angular inertia. And there are any number of other um, uh, concepts of energy that relate to those um, those those basic uh, dynamics of energy. And all of this system rests, rests on that. The, the symbolism of Ganesha, the elephant god in Hinduism, is 100% about those dynamics of energy. I devoted an entire book to just that, talking through um, how we can determine. Um, in the Dogen system, we're fortunate that we have a system that where everything is represented as science. And by the time you, you move those concepts to ancient Egypt, they've deified things. Where a concept that the Dogen see as a scientific stage of creation, the Egyptians have now deified, or the Hindus have deified um, some of the other traditions have deified. So yeah, sort of have to get back to the root form, but I could tell from the Dogen references, I could infer things about Hinduism that had to have originally been true. For instance, I could see that Ganesha related to this concept of spinning energy on the material side of the universes. But the Dogen were telling me there was a second spiral of energy, a second spinning energy as a counterpart to that on the non-material side. Now the material side is represented as masculine. The non-material side is represented as feminine. And so I went out in search of concepts of a female Ganesha. And I knew that the relationship that the Dogen described between those two, that non-material energy and the material energy is the concept of an embrace. So I was looking for an ancient concept of embracing Ganesha is male and female. And eventually I turned up references to the fact that the concept had existed. It had actually been banned in China at 1100 AD by uh, an emperor. It was banned from inclusion in a master volume on Buddhism and banned from any reference in Chinese society. It was so such a secretive concept. Um, it did end up surviving in uh, Japan in Shingon Buddhism the concept survived. I even came across um, descriptions of how if you're going to represent it in a figure, um, what's the proper way to create that figure? Well, there were instructions that you've got to build it out of brass and it has to be a certain height and the figures have to have certain attributes and wearing certain styles of clothing. Um, the left foot of each figure has to be resting on the toes of the right foot of the other figure. I mean, all these little details, symbolic details of how it should be. And so then my wife and I set out on the internet to see if we could find any representation of it. And I, I came up with some very tiny, not very satisfactory representations of it, but she happened across a perfect figure built precisely to the, the specifications um, for sale from a site in India for about $30. And so we ordered it. Um, she was told, you know, the site said, um, allow six to eight weeks for delivery. And we thought, well, yeah, that's how long it takes to get things from India. Fine, we'll agree to that, no problem. Three days later, the package was at our doorstep. The concept is called Kanjiten. Um, there's a site in in Japan that's um, just outside of Tokyo called um, Kangoin. 
and Congo Wien celebrated this form of the embracing Ganeshas. There was an entire um, temple there um, where the, this figure was housed. And the figure was so secretive that it was only allowed to be housed in portable shrines. It had to be able to be moved on a moment's notice. Uh, as it turns out, that same concept is represented at Gobekli Tepe. It's just not obvious that it is. At Gobekli Tepe, we have, in addition to the carvings of animal shapes, we also have certain symbols carved. They're symbols that look like um, uh, English language letter H. And there are symbols that look like parentheses. Um, there are symbols, uh, arms, carved arms that come down the end of uh, the sides of a pillar and hands that wrap around the end of the pillar. Well, one of these symbols looks like a stylized form of that letter H. Uh, in the Masonic tradition, that letter H is um, understood to represent non-material and material energies coming together the same way the Ganeshas represent that same concept. Well, one day I was making a post on Facebook and I was including a picture of that sort of stylized H along with two or three other pictures. And what Facebook does is when you have more than one picture, it will sort of show you a, a, a composite of the three photos you're posting, but sort of blown up. They, they focus on only certain segments of the picture. And I realized when I saw the blown up version of this stylized H that it wasn't an H at all. It was the figure of two elephants. And so that figure um, demonstrates that this concept of the embracing elephants um, goes back as far as Quebec uh, Tepe, which is, you know, 11,000 years. And you mentioned elephantine uh, before as well. Um, and you mentioned the uh, mountain that was in the shape of an elephant. Is that another connection to some of this? Yeah, absolutely. The um, Purposeful settlement. Yes. I mean, even on Orkney in Scotland, where there never were elephants, you have the quintessential example of two mountains that look like reclining elephants that mm -hmm. carried the symbolism. So this is symbolism that originated at, in the Gobekli Tepe region, where they, there were indigenous forms of elephants there till about the end of the BC era, and then they died out. Um, but there are researchers who say, well, there were, there were never elephants at Elephantine, that the symbolism there has got to be because of trade. But in fact, there's all sorts of elephant symbolism there. They've dug up um, carved statues of elephants there. Um, you have the symbolic tradition of having located the site in view of a mountain that looks like a reclining elephant. You have an island that's shaped like the tusk of an elephant. You have icon, the original um, uh, icon of the locality at Elephantine was, uh, was a picture of an elephant. Uh, actually, it was a boat with elephants pictured on the side of it. So would they be produce, would they be producing these images and not knowing what are there just more? Do you think that they're just illustrating a concept that ends up looking like an elephant? Well, I think that uh, until, until a certain point in history, there were elephants in that region. Right. Um, and that the, the elephant became important symbolically to the religion. The people who were the carriers of the religion understood that the elephant, um, you know, what the elephant had been and what the elephant was to the tradition and sort of carried it on in one form or another. Um, 
even the name Abydos, Ab is a, um, a phonetic that means elephant and refers to tusks and things like that in ancient Egyptian language. So it's elephant, 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 elephant everywhere you go, whether they know it or not. So another concept that you talk about greatly in the book, you talk about the kind of like the concept of time and space. And again, you kind of covered this a little bit, talking about Einstein, the relativity theory and all that. Okay. Um, this gets a little bit tricky. The essential difference between a massive domain and a mass less domain is how quickly time runs because it goes hand in hand with the lack of mass. Uh, they've done experiments uh, about quantum entanglement, quantum entanglement. If uh, people may realize that two electrons can be induced to become entangled with each other. And when they entangle them, it doesn't matter how far apart you move those electrons from each other. If you change certain attributes of one electron, automatically the corresponding attributes of the other electron flip hundreds of miles apart from each other. The suggestion is that our sense of space is not really how things are, that under the covers, there really is no distance between those two, um, two electrons. Now, the way to understand that is I live a three-hour drive from New York City. If I were to walk it, it could take me days and days. If I was going to ride a bike, it would take me a shorter time than walking. If I were to, um, you know, ride on a, a, a canoe, if I was to get a canoe down the Hudson River, I could get there maybe quicker than, than if I was walking. If I, I could take a train and get there quicker, I could take a, an, a, an airplane and get there quicker, I could take a jet airplane and get there even quicker. Or I could use a computer and link to the internet to a computer there instantaneously. It doesn't matter how fast I connect to New York City, the distance spatially is exactly the same. It, the distance doesn't change. Right. Only That's your constant. Right. That, that the distance is a constant. Whatever the distance is, it's a constant. Well, the implications of this energetic system are that what's primarily happening under the covers is not the distance is changing, but that the rate of time is. I'll try to give you an understanding of what I mean by that. We know that the speed of light is constant. That no matter, um, it's not like, you know, chasing light is not like chasing a train. If I'm in a car chasing a train and I speed up, I can change. I can make a difference in the, the, the speed differential between us. If I go 10 miles an hour faster, suddenly it's as if the train's going 10 miles an hour slower and relative to me. That's not true with light. With light, speed is a constant. It doesn't matter how fast I go. I'll always measure light at 186,000 miles per second ahead of me. Now, the only way that can happen is if time slows down as I speed up. Einstein says that acceleration is indistinguishable from an increase in mass. So increasing mass slows time frame. So now as we have this spinning energy spinning, one of the things it's doing as a consequence of the spinning and the resonance and the formation of mass is it's slowing time frame. And what that means is that the second that I experienced, if I experienced the duration of one second right now, 
and then the energy spins some more and it slows time down. What happened in a second now take, might take twice as long to happen in the new slower version of a second. And in that slower version of the second, because the speed of light is constant, light has the ability now to travel twice as far as it did in the quicker second. There's an Egyptian concept of mat. It's a complicated concept. Nobody really has their arms around what mat referred to. It's sometimes described as truth or as justice. This is ancient Egypt stuff. Truth or justice or right thinking. But every Egyptian word explains its own meaning to us with the glyphs that are used to write it. And the root word of mat is ma. And that word ma, the glyphs read, when you, when you substitute concepts for glyphs, the glyphs read, perception is the foundation of measure. If you slow time frame and you allow light to travel twice as far tomorrow as it did today, all the distances to all ways of my perceiving them have now doubled. And I have no way of distinguishing that they haven't. What this means is that simply by slowing time frame, I can make it appear as if the universe is expanding when it's not. And the proof that it's not is entangled particles. That those entangled particles can't be very far apart from each other to be to be flipping automatically when we change one, automatically flipping the other. Under the covers, there can't be a whole lot of distance between them. Distance has got to be an illusion. Now, one of the consequences of that is, you know, right now astronomers are baffled because they use their telescopes to look out into the distance. They can look back billions of years in the distance and they do their calculations and it looks to them as if the rate of expansion of the universe has been quickening. It's getting quicker and quicker. The expansion rate is getting faster and faster. So it was expanding at a certain rate 100,000 years ago and now it's expanding at a much quicker rate. And so they're postulating dark concepts like dark energy as there's got to be some force that's pushing this, that's accelerating, that's making it go quicker and quicker and quicker. What they don't understand is that from the ancient perspective, what they're seeing is the slowing down of their own time frame, the effect of the slowing down of their own time frame. The universe isn't expanding more quickly. Our time is running more slowly for us, so it looks like it's expanding more quickly. And we don't need dark matter to explain that. All we need is an understanding that it's time that's changing, not space. From our perception, it looks like space is changing. But this is no no more greater an intellectual leap than figuring out that the sun didn't orbit around the earth. To all outward appearances, it looks to us like the sun moves around us, but it doesn't. There's an alternate way of looking at things by which we can understand that we're actually moving around it. So this cosmology fills in a lot of holes that theoretical physics is trying to come to come to terms with. Right. And actually it all simplifies incredibly pretty much all of the in, intractable mysteries of astrophysics evaporate when you look at things the way the Dogen look at them, that all you've really got is a handful of dynamics of energy and the concept that time slows down when you, when you increase mass 
And from that as your starting point, you can coherently explain the whole the whole spectrum from quantum world to universes and not bump up against these intractable problems. There's the questions of collapse of the the wave function to create particles is not an issue anymore. All you're really seeing is a slowing of time frame. Larry, do you run any of these concepts that the the Dogon talk about to any like physicists? Have you ever run that across any of them? Like, have, and if you have, what have they said about it? Um, when I written the first book, The Science of the Dogon, originally it was called Hidden Meanings. I self-published a book called Hidden Meanings that was then republished as The Science of the Dogon. Um, my friend John Anthony West took me to a CPAC conference, and one of the speakers there was a physicist from a well-known physicist from California who has worked on governmental projects. He, he says he himself has created half a dozen anti-gravity devices, each one requiring less and less energy. I spent the better part of the weekend trying to get this guy's attention, but he was a very distractible guy and a guy with a lot of personal issues. And every time I thought I would have two minutes with him, his phone would ring or someone would interrupt him and call him away, or he'd think of something he hadn't done. He'd have to go off. And I just could not get his attention the entire weekend. Finally, the last night of the conference, we happened to find ourselves in the same lobby together. And I stopped him and I said, can I take five minutes and give you the, the five minute uh, pricey summary of what my book's about. And so I explained to him that, what I've been talking to you about, that the Dogen system, symbolic system is science. And when I finished explaining it, he said to me, you know, I have been waiting for 20 years for someone to tell me that. Hmm. And he agreed to take my book and the manuscript for a second book back to California with him and went through them with a fine tooth comb. And the conclusion he came back to me with was whoever had put that system to symbolic system together knew what they were talking about. And wow. that from, from a public point of view, that the system that, it's, that it most compares to is a version of string theory called torsion theory. Okay. That's some good edification there, Laird. That's some good um, confirmation for what you've been looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's edifying to you as well that, you, that all this work that you've put into looking at this, that someone would 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 say that say like, yeah there's something here to this right now the thing is that about the dogan system that it has enough self-coherence that i didn't really need that verification from outside from anybody because simply following it from the point of view they express it in terms of it made complete sense there's no there's no reason not to believe that what they're saying is right especially because in many cases there is no traditional theory about why a thing happens and the Dogen are explaining it in perfectly reasonable terms. Why wouldn't I go with what the Dogen say? Well, just a little bit of time that we have left here with you, Laird, I, I wanted to ask you uh, kind of like your next step in understanding all this. Like you said, this is, you're kind of at, I guess you're at your own kind of midpoint right now looking at this and I know that this has been going on with you for several years. What are you looking at now? Okay. The book I just self published 
is the a coherent explanation of how the tradition got from Gobekli Tepe at 9000 BC to Orkney Island in Scotland at 3600 BC. And the, the, the simple act of tracing that, uh, through the simple act of tracing that, all sorts of really incredibly interesting stuff falls out. It becomes apparent that wasn't apparent before. We, we, we are led to understand what the relationships between certain ancient cultures had to have been. There's no way it couldn't have been. That we have objective reason, ways of tracing how this tradition got from point A to point B, and everything in between has to fall along that line. And so in terms of eras, historical eras and geogra geography and so forth, in terms of symbolism, you can see where certain aspects of the tradition developed and emerged and so forth. So that was, that's the most recent piece. And I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about that because um, it puts a whole lot in perspective for me that I hadn't been there before. Um, the next book that I'll begin working on, I've, I've already done some of the research for it, but the next one that I'll end up writing um, is going to be about root dynamics of energy that go deeper than what we've been just been talking about. It goes down to um, what the nature of energy had to be like originally to allow two universes to differentiate from each other. And how do you get from that differentiated energy to the spinning energy we were talking about? So that's probably the, ne the next piece. Another piece I would like to get to if I have time is, and opportunity is, um, I realized a, c a couple of years back that I had enough of an overview of the concept of Ganesha to essentially evaluate all the varying myths about Ganesha's origin and reformulate that myth. That I understand how the myth, myth was myths were put to, supposed to be put together. I understand the meanings of the words. I understand the symbolism of the characters. I was in a position to sit down and essentially rewrite the Ganesha origin myth. And so I took a book and I did that. I devoted a book to doing that. I am in a position to do the same with any number of other ancient myths right now. If I were willing to devote the time and effort, I could identify which I think are the essential core myths of this tradition and reframe them in ways that would be very close to how they must have originally looked. The language sort of forces us to, to do it. There are techniques being used. Every word carries a cluster of meanings. And many of the myths, you'll see that the storyline of the myth centers on these clusters of meanings of the words. That every action or every attribute of the characters in that myth are some aspect of this cluster of meanings of this cosmological concept. So knowing that, I'm in a position to go back to some of these creation stories and, and the very, various aspects of it and, um, and reformulate, reformulate that and publish a book of myths. Oh, nice. Very nice. Well, Larry, this has been incredibly fascinating. This has been a great discussion. Um, you've definitely enlightened us. We got a little. We got a little bit of science on this show tonight. Um, I am. I am. I am really fascinated by this and this whole your whole your whole work that you have put into this. I, I mean, really, how many books has it been now? What are you up to? Let's see. the The last, the one I just self published is the twelfth book. Um, not counting wow. the fact that the first book was published in two forms. Okay. There are also um, 
some foreign language uh, versions, editions of a couple of the books. So it's, it's more than 12 total, but it's 12, basically 12 volumes. So what, what year did you start this whole thing? Late in the 1990s, the first, it took me years. I wasn't planning to write a book. I was just keeping notes for myself and trying to keep it organized and straight. And then finally realized, hey, I have all the material here, organize the right way to write a book. So I it, I could publish, self-publish a book for about $700 back in those days. And so I self-published through Ex Libris. And then that book, um, around, that was around 2002 or 2003. That book ended up finding John Anthony West who then took it to a publishing fair and personally shopped publishers for the book and for the next manuscript. And then he sort of took me by the hand and made introductions at conferences and uh, uh, arranged for me to write articles for magazines and talked me up on interview shows and, and things like that. All right. Excellent. Larry, where can people get the book? Okay. Um, my publisher is Inner Traditions, so innertraditions.com is a good place to start. There's a, uh, an author page for me there. Um, I also have an author page on simonandschuster.com. Um, all my books are on amazon.com, uh, and they can be ordered through any bookstore. Chances are if you walk into a Barnes & Noble bookstore, you'll find at least one of my books on the shelf. Um, but if not, they can be ordered through any bookstore. In yeah, terms definitely. of finding me personally, the best place to Best place to find me personally is on face, Facebook, probably. There's a LairdScranton.com website, but it's not my site. It was a fan site, and it's sort of uh, not been man- maintained, and so that's not not me. Uh, okay, so if you want to if you want to correspond with Laird, hit him up on his Facebook. Uh, okay, well, excellent, Laird. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you, sir. S- stay on the line for us, though. Uh, we're going to close and we're because we're going to take a, a little break and we'll come back to close out the show on Conspiranormal. All right, we're back. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, just the brief wrap-up as usual. That was a, a very interesting and informative discussion with Laird Scranton. Very happy to have him on the show. I yeah, am quite, um, quite an intricate uh, cosmology yeah. that he has worked out into the comparative mythology. Um, that is... Uh, can take a little bit to get to wrap your head around, but... Um, you know, like I said, it's multifaceted. It relates to physics. It relates to uh, history and all these different mythological systems and symbolism. And it's a it's a lot. It is a lot. Um, it's um, it's it's really fascinating. I I've always loved the stuff about ancient civilizations. I am one of these people that's just like is a geek for all that kind of stuff. And we actually talked a little bit more about that and some more like ancient mysteries. If you go to our Patreon, uh, we talked to um, some about someone that Laird is a very big fan of, and that is Laird. That is Emmanuel Velikovsky, and. Uh, Velikovsky was a, a writer and uh, 
catastrophist as he was, I guess, derisively called back in the, like, the mid 20th century and some of his interesting ideas. So if you guys want to check that out, that is on our Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And also, I believe pretty soon here, we are going to be making some changes to Patreon, correct? Big changes. So, yeah, we're going to be making some big changes, some interesting changes. So, guys, stay tuned for that. Um, we're going to have probably an announcement on that before the year is over. I really honestly cannot believe that 2020 is just about over. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad for it to... Hopefully, 2021 will be a whole hell of a lot better. Yeah, so, it's just flown by. Yeah. Any thoughts about that interview or anything? It's uh, it's quite the undertaking. Yes, it is. I mean, 12 books, all about all about that. And he's, I thought he was done, and apparently he's just in the middle of it. So, uh, kudos to Laird for doing what he does. Um, Okay, guys, I think that's it. We're going we're gonna to sign off here. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, like I said, we are approaching the um, towards the end of the year. And uh, pretty soon at the end of this year, we'll have Dr. Future to do the end of the year show. And there's a lot more coming up, guys. So stay tuned on Conspiranormal. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.